This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Lily de Hoyos Anderson is a first-generation American. Her mother is French and her father is Mexican. Sister Anderson attended BYU and graduated in sociology. After almost 20 years of being a full-time homemaker, Sister Anderson returned to school to complete a master's in social work degree at UNLV and a PhD in marriage, family, and human development from BYU, where she taught for several years in the School of Family Life. She is a licensed social worker and has a full-time private practice in individual marriage and family counseling. Dr. Anderson has published in the Enzyme and in various books and journals. She is also the author of two books. She also, which is so fun, just started her own podcast called Choosing Glory. I'm going to go check that out (laughs) because I just learned about that. Um, So I would encourage our listeners to also check that out. And finally... Uh, Lily is mother to eight children, grandmother to 36. She just let me know tonight. And she lives in Draper, Utah with her husband. So welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I am Tara McCausland. And Lily, I'm so happy to have you here with me tonight. Well, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Well, I heard Lily on the uh, follow. Is it follow him? podcast mm-hmm. with John, by the way, and Hank Smith a number of months ago and was just struck by her passion and her intelligence <laughs> and that I need to have this woman on my podcast. So well, I'm just I'm so passionate. <laughs> <laughs> I love truth. And the gospel is so generous about truth that I, anyway, I get pretty excited. <laughs> well, I, you're a woman after my own heart. I've often said to people that if, if we still had, you know, crates and street corners where we could preach, I would be there. So this is kind of my, my crate. <laughs> street corners. So. Well, I'm really actually very excited about the topic that we're going to be discussing tonight. I think Lily is Uh, very qualified to speak to this point, being the mother of eight, grandmother to 36, and with your uh, education and your clinical experience as a therapist. But we are going to be discussing raising our children in the gospel while honoring agency. And shout out to my cousin, Kara in Texas, who actually, (laughs) we had a little Marco Polo conversation going, and she said, if you're going to continue the podcast, I need you, we we need to have this conversation about raising particularly teenagers in the gospel. And still, again, as I said, honoring agency, it's a, it's a hard parenting is always hard, right, Lily, but I feel like it's getting that much harder Mm -hmm. in this age. And that's probably fair. Although I don't know, I've often thought about those uh, first chapters of Helaman where, um, you know, the prophet this is the third Nephi, basically, we, we usually call him, and uh, he's raising two prophet sons. I'm sorry, it's Helaman II. Let me correct myself. Remember, there was that dynasty of prophets, Alma, the elder, then Alma, the younger, then Helaman, then Helaman, and then, and then we have these two prophet sons that raise up together, and they're Nephi and Lehi, and during that time, the world was falling apart. The society was very evil, and even the church had struggles. So I was always really impressed by that and very 
you know, uplifted and, and heartened by that, that even in terrible times, you can raise great children. I'm not saying it's not tricky because it is tricky. And parenting really is, I think, a test of our mettle in so many ways. Um, and particularly now, I won't say that it hasn't gotten harder. I think, in fact, if we do the same things our parents did, even if we had great parents, it's not enough. So mm -hmm. we really do have to up our game in every generation lately because the challenges have um, have become pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. Well, as I often say, I feel like, you know, as Dickens said in his tale of two cities, it's the best of times and the worst of times. And I feel like the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we can live it and help our children really understand the value of it in their lives, this is a wonderful time to be alive with, with all of the opportunities that were afforded that were not afforded previous generations, especially as women. I, I feel very grateful to live at this time, but no doubt um, we have unique difficulties that we have to work we through. We understand that. Not, I don't mean to make anybody feel bad if they're feeling challenged because the challenges are real. So yeah. it's almost yeah. like, you know, if you can remain completely calm in times like these, you're not paying attention. So <laughs> It is good that people are aware of the challenge. It, it is definitely a challenge. And, and uh, your cousin's right. You know, it can be really tricky with teenagers. Um, I do want to say that I have been incredibly grateful for the experiences I have. My, I actually came from a family of three girls. So I had two sisters and my husband had one sister. So we didn't come from big families. We really had to kind of make this up as we went along. And I spent a lot of time on my knees. I spent a ton of time on my knees and not just on my knees, because, you know, when you have a bunch of kids, sometimes you, your time on your knees is limited. You know, you get down on your knees and you fall asleep. So <laughs> um, I did a lot of prayers on the go a lot of prayers on the go. Uh, in fact, to the point that I would start prayers and not really, I would get interrupted before I could finish them because I was praying on the go. And I was a little disturbed by not acknowledging Jesus Christ. So I thought about it for uh, just a moment and I thought, I'll do it like the sacrament prayers. And I'm encouraging all mothers out there, fathers too, if you're doing those prayers on the go, I just would start, you know, acknowledging Heavenly Father and then say in the name of Jesus Christ. And then I would pray on the go, often <laughs> silently, so whatever. And if I didn't have a chance to formally end the prayer, I had acknowledged both the Father and the Son, and I felt like they would understand. So it was, it was absolutely a collaborative effort. Um, I, I needed, I needed the Spirit to teach me about parenting. My own parents were remarkable people in so many ways. I could go on forever on that, which I won't. But my mother was not a great disciplinarian, and she acknowledged this fully. As much as she knew about human behavior and about the gospel of Jesus Christ, she really didn't do too well with that. And, you know, we talked about everything. So um, that came up. And when I realized, I mean, I didn't plan on having eight children. I thought I'd probably have three or four, like my family of origin. But um, as we started to have children in kind of a fast and furious way, those eight children are born in 12 years. I... And I was healthy and happy about being a mother, super, super grateful for that opportunity. But I realized I was going to need real help. So I really felt tutored by the spirit, put into situations where I, I really had an opportunity to learn in, in um, moments of exigency, sort of like mm -hmm. I was a 22 year old primary president and I had oh. a primary. that was one of the tutoring experiences that was really valuable to me. But anyway, I'm, I'm going off on this for a little bit because God will teach us. He will teach us. He is more invested in our children than we are, yeah. which is a really comforting truth. So he has 
desire to bless us with with what we need. And that doesn't mean it comes, you know, in the mail or in a clear email or something. It comes in whisperings and promptings and experiences and whatever. But um, one of the great experiences of, well, not one of the best because I've had some really wonderful experiences, but I, I remember with real gratitude being in a class in my doctoral program and being introduced to the Baumrind parenting model and recognizing the truth of it because I was taught that by the spirit decades before. And when I saw it, I was like, that's what the spirit taught me. I knew it was true. I actually knew more about the model than the model taught because of the ways the spirit had taught me application. So anyway, my, my heart full of gratitude, which doesn't mean that we had a perfect family or that we never made mistakes as parents or as children. Um, that's not real life and uh, shouldn't be expected. There's a, a psychologist, I believe from Great Britain, I can't remember her name, but um, a guy who did a lot of parenting research. And he had a really good point, I thought, where he talked about how so often these researchers come up with great ideas about parenting, but then they teach the ideals. And the ideals are really, of course, sort of improbable, if not impossible sometimes. So he started kind of coining the, the term good enough parenting. Hmm. And he made the point that, you know, children do pretty well if they have good enough parenting. And I love that. And yeah. I invite everybody out there to consider that we don't have to be perfect parents. That's really not going to happen. And our kids don't need to be perfect. But if we're, if we're good enough, if we kind of get into that realm of the spectrum of parenting that is pretty healthy, it's pretty good most of the time, you know what, our kids are going to have a really great chance. And a lot of it will depend on the choices they make, but they're going to have, we're going to give them a really good chance if we work at being good enough parents. Yeah, I love that. Well, the two takeaways from, from just that was, you know, they were God's children first, right? And I, I believe that, that God, because he's so invested in our children, he will give us the revelation that we, that we ask for, that we seek for. And so knowing that we, we ought to be on our knees more often praying specifically on for children on, and, and on the go. Yes. And that we don't have to do this perfectly because we won't. So I, I appreciate that as kind of a, a kickoff to this conversation. Um, and I, I did want to say something really quick before I ask this first question. Um, I'm sure you'll, you'll recall that wonderful talk by Sister Jones in the last conference um, mm -hmm. where she, she talked about, well, she shared a story of a little boy, a four-year-old boy who had fallen out of bed and you know, his parents came running into his bedroom and said, what happened? He said, well, I fell out of bed. And they said, well, how did that happen? And his response was, well, I guess I just wasn't far enough in. <laughs> and so what I would love to discuss in this, this first question is how do we how do we help our children get far enough in to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they're not vulnerable to, to the, the temptations of the world? And more specifically, how do we raise faithful, hardworking, resilient kids who really know who they are? Well, um, you know, that's a mouthful of a question. I know it is. I know that's a taller. So let me, let me take a stab at it. Um, First of all, um, there are no guarantees. Mm -hmm. and, and again, that's good to recognize that, you know, God, the perfect parent, you know, had a third of his children that didn't even make it to this planet. And then 
you know, when he talks about the celestial kingdom, he says, straight as a gate, narrow is the way and few there be that find it, relatively speaking, you know. So again, on this planet, he doesn't anticipate that, I mean, and, and he has these three kingdoms establishes his plan from the beginning. And this plan has been run, you know, gazillions of times, and it's a perfect plan. So I think it's really important. And I, and I mentioned this in the Follow Him podcast, if some people may have heard this, but it's worth repeating that the product of parenting isn't the child, it's the parent. And we really need to get our heads around that as parents, because we get, if we get too twisted up in that, and we think that our children's choices and our children's behavior is a complete reflection of who we are, we can't parent well. We get too bound up with guilt. We get too concerned about what that might mean in terms of reflecting on our identity or our worth. And, and it makes us much worse parents when we get tied up into, into that kind of knot. So it's really important to take three giant steps back and look again and look understand this plan. Like you know, I work with a lot of parents as a clinician and and I see the great love and I see sometimes the, the great sorrow that happens when their children choose a mess and you know, leave the church or get involved in drugs or, you know, sexual behavior or whatever, some serious sins, you know, things that they really um, suffer over the parents suffer over as well. And they, and they um, so often, you know, think, you know, what, what was my fault here? You know, what did I do or what I didn't do? And I think those are the wrong questions. And I'm not suggesting we can't learn from every experience because we can, that's the plan. But we, to define ourselves by our children's behavior, I mean, that would be a disaster if God did that. I mean, if he defined himself by the behavior of his children, you know, he wouldn't be in such good shape either. So how does he do that? Well, and in fact, let me add this. And I heard this from a client many years ago. And since then, I've heard it a few times. Maybe maybe other people have heard this, um, that, you know, people will say that a mother is only as happy as her least happy child. And when I first heard that, it was from a client in my office, as I said, probably almost two decades ago. And I, and I really thought about that because as a mother myself, I mean, I could see the resonance of that in a way and think that like, wow, you know, that's, that sounds true, but, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, when I had time later, I, I returned to that thought and I completely rejected it because not that it doesn't happen, yeah. but I don't believe that it should happen. I don't believe that that should be our lot in life, that if we have a child as mothers or fathers who is rebellious or chooses a wrong path, that we are only as happy as that child. I mean, that's, first of all, that's a betrayal to, of our other children. And it's a betrayal of our own journey. And the way I got there was just remembering, you know, how often have we heard that mother's love is kind of the closest earthly approximation to God's love, right? I mean, we hear that said, and, and there's truth to that. So I thought, again, is God only as happy as his least happy child? And again, I rejected that out of hand because I'm like, of course not. Why would we have wanted to be like him if he were miserable? So what he's offering us is everlasting and complete joy because that's what he has. So I was like, well, no. So how can he maintain such great joy, a fullness of joy, knowing that his children make all kinds of really dumb mistakes and do really bad things to each other sometimes? And I thought it's because he has engineered this amazing plan that provides this perfect opportunity for each of his children to get what they want. And yet not only do we, we get what we want, but God is so merciful that we all get more than we deserve. 
So even Hitler, Stalin, Mao, you know, and Jack the Ripper, anyway, you know, really, really bad people who took joy in hurting other people and doing evil stuff, even those people who will have to spend however long in hell because they wouldn't accept the atonement of Christ to because they didn't repent. So they have to balance the scales themselves and they have to suffer. And it sounds terrible, right? DNC 19, how sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. So, I mean, that's a miserable situation going to hell and having to pay the price of our own sins. But once they have paid the uttermost farthing because of the mercy of the plan and the grace of the atonement of Jesus Christ, after they've paid that price, they will be redeemed from hell and given a resurrected body that will never get sick or old or tired or won't be in pain ever again. And they get a measure of glory, like the glory of the stars. And they'll live in part of God's kingdom in peace and with even family connections. And I'm like, wow, like that's the worst that can happen to our children. And most of our children are anything like Stalin or Mao. So I'm like, let's, let's realize that, that there's a happy ending. It's guaranteed. It's already a done deal. Everybody will be redeemed from hell. Even the worst at the end of the millennium will be redeemed from hell and get a perfect body and a measure of glory. So I'm like, this is a happy story. There are dark days sometimes, you know, as, as we're especially you know, seeing Satan rage seemingly out of control, but it's a happy ending. And that's why God can be happy because he knows that all of his children won't be left in hell and all of his children will have this wonderful body and have whatever measure of glory they receive, but added upon because of the mercy that is a part of the plan. That's a long explanation, but I think it's really important. So I think that there's no reason to be miserable. God himself is not, you know, only as happy as his least happy child. Again, why would we want to be like him? Why would we participate in the plan if that's the outcome? It's not. So we don't have to take on that burden now. And as I said, there is a real problem with that. If we, if we let ourselves get so bound up in our own identity, our own happiness, based on the behavior of our children, we abdicate our stewardships toward our spouses and towards any other children that we might have. And that's, that's not fair. That's really not fair. And I've heard, I've talked to some of those children whose parents have a troubled child and they do feel abandoned. You know, my mother's just miserable all the time, or, you know, my dad's just inconsolable about this or whatever. And that's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you bring up. So these two points here, if we can really embrace and understand the plan that it is an incredibly generous and merciful plan, that there is a happy ending for 99% of God's children. You know, that there's that small minute group that will experience <laughs> And they know what they're doing. They right. are not deceived that's, at that point. They get what they want also, which is kind of unfathomable, right. but you know, that's what they want. So yeah, you're right. right. It's, it's a happy ending. And to be able to differentiate enough um, from our children to be able to own our own happiness. And mm-hmm. oftentimes I think we, we take on other people's stuff, including, and especially our children's stuff. And let me say as a counselor, but I learned this as a mother first, but as a counselor, you know, you can't help people if you don't love them. Yeah. And that's one of the great privileges of what I do is I get to meet so many people and they're all, they're all lovable because everybody is unique and valuable. Nevertheless, if, if I try to own what my clients do, I couldn't help them either. 
I would be a disaster. Oh yeah. So the same thing applies to parents. It really does, you know? So um, it's, it's a similar principle. If you really want to help, if you really want to bless, if you want to give opportunities to our children, we can't own their stuff. We can own our stuff and we do need to own our stuff. How did I treat that child? Whatever. So back to the question originally, because there are some really wonderful answers about how to work to get our kids far enough into the gospel, which is a wonderful you know, way to frame that. And, and it's a good reminder that there is a lot a parent can do. So, you know, sometimes in counseling, we, we joke that it takes like 60 years to get over the first 18 because those first 18 years are really formative. They are developmental and, and that's a serious deal. So parents do have a lot of power for good or ill. And mm-hmm. we try to do good things as parents. We can really help our children have much more of a, of a likelihood of continuing in the path that we'd like. So let me tell you another story. When my husband and I were first married, Um, And we had a honeymoon baby. So we were parents pretty quickly. But even in those months before we had that baby, (laughs) and and even after, because of course, he was a babe in arms uh, for a while, but we would kind of practice being parents uh, vicariously by watching other parents parent. So let's say we were sitting in sacrament meeting and a kid, there actually was a kid like this in our ward. (laughs) who would sometimes during the sacrament, he would just run up one of the aisles and, you know, go over the podium and bang on the piano and then come down the other aisle. <laughs> and, you know, and, and his parents didn't really know what to do about it. And anyway, um, anyway, there were always other opportunities, whether it was in a grocery store or somewhere else where we would see parents deal with a child that was maybe not behaving very well. And we would kind of go home or when we had a moment in the car, or whatever, we'd say, okay, what would we do if that were our child? And that was a really good practice, you know, like there's a real life scenario. <laughs> so how do, should we maybe try to handle that? And sometimes we thought the parents did a good job and we learned something from the way they did it. And sometimes we thought the parents didn't do such a good job. And we'd say like, is there a way that maybe we could approach that would be a, that would be a little more effective or whatever. And, and I loved that little practice that we would do. Now, most of us are, you know, maybe that are listening are already in the, in the soup, so to speak. So we may not be practicing <laughs> vicariously, but, but it was a good practice. And I learned something so wonderful from my husband. Um, he, he's really a great guy. And sometimes he has these moments of pure intelligence. It's really fun to watch because, you know, they just kind of come at random moments. But this was one of them. And I asked him about where he got this and he couldn't remember. He didn't, you know, he said, well, my parents didn't really say this or whatever. But anyway, I think it was one of those moments that he would get a revelation. But what he would say when we were doing these little vicarious scenarios was, um, well, remember, we have to guard the relationship. Mm -hmm. And that was just this phrase that he came up with that became a mantra for us. And what a blessing that was to have that right up front before our first child was even born guard the relationship. And I learned along the way of having, you know, this intense family that that was just such a blessing to, to focus on keeping the relationship positive. Um, I learned that control is a joke. Mm -hmm. And that is not to say that we should be completely out of control either. Let me, and I'll come back to that because it's a really important point. I don't believe that we're helpless as parents, not at all. We have incredible powers. I said those first 18 years are powerful and there's a lot of good we can do to help our children be more inclined to follow the gospel plan in its entirety and to have those blessings. We can't guarantee it, but there's a lot we can do. So I don't at all mean to suggest that parents are helpless, but I do mean that as I went further and further as a parent, I realized that it's not really about control. It's about influence. 
Hmm. And that was powerful to, to keep in mind because, you know, long before they're, they're bigger than we are, they're quicker than we are. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it is more about influence. It's more about developing this relationship with the children where they are inclined to obey us. And we have that kind of influence because we've established this positive relationship and used some other really amazing, wonderful principles that I'll talk about that can help our children respond to that influence and keep it very positive. And, and control would be a problem, right? If anybody knows about you know, authoritarian parents, that is the effort to control. And as soon as the kids are old enough, they shake the dust off their feet and get out of Dodge. So right. that's not going to be any lasting influence. But if we can maintain the relationship as well as teach good principles of self-control and delayed gratification, we can have continuing influence. And it happens beyond when they're even in our homes. You know, when our kids were in college, we were still in Las Vegas and our kids uh, came up to the Y for college. You know, they would call us. This is, we're pretty old now. So it was back in the day, it was an 800 number. <laughs> My husband would sometimes look at that bill and go like, wow, <laughs> look at what we're paying for those kids to call us on this number. And I'd say, you know what? I would pay that 10 times over. They don't have to tell us what they're doing anymore. They're in another state on a campus, but, you know, we are not setting the curfew. We're not you know, directing their lives or their rules. And they call to ask our advice on the people they're dating, on the classes they're taking anyway, et cetera, et cetera. And I was so grateful for that. And my husband was too, but it was, um, you know, I felt like that was the influence that we'd been able to cultivate. And even in their marriages and when they're choosing a partner, that they would be willing to talk to us about that. And, you know, we're very careful about that. My husband very wisely once said, you know, if we try to make the decision, it'll be our fault. <laughs> we don't want to take that on. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. You're right. I'm not, I'm not going to try to make that decision, but, but to be able to counsel with them about, you know, the factors on which they're making that decision and, and then, you know, to have them come for parenting advice or marriage advice, you know, those are just such great moments where you're just, so filled with gratitude that they care to come and be influenced by us. Um, so that's, that's the long game. It, the long game is influence. It is not about control. Now that said, I, I don't want to say that, that um, there is no, that no ability that we have to influence our children's behavior because we absolutely have tremendous power that most of us are not using. In fact, this has been a very long-term concern of mine. We see so many particularly young mothers in the church who become depressed and anxious being at home full-time with their kids. And, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I've met with some of those women and observed a lot more. And I think a lot of it is because they are out of control. <laughs> they don't, they feel so overwhelmed. Their children are, you know, not behaving well. And as they get older, it doesn't get better. And they, they feel really depressed because here they have devoted their lives, if they're full-time moms, which God really encourages us to be because it is such a blessing to our children to give that time. And it's a blessing to have a husband who's able and willing to support that. Um, these are sacrifices that we make, you know, to, to take that time. And yet if it's so overwhelming and we get to where we don't even like our own children, I mean, we might love them, but liking them is different. Yes. If we don't like them, it can be really depressing and anxiety producing. And how tragic is that, that here we're trying to follow you know, the council of prophets trying to do it in the way that God would prefer. And then, and then it just blows up in our face and we're miserable. And that just breaks my heart. 
mm-hmm. because there is a better way than that. And really the better way is to recognize that um, all behavior is motivated. So here's a gem, like really, um, brothers and sisters, I'm giving you a gem right now. <laughs> so <laughs> all behavior is motivated and it's motivated by the costs that the behavior produces and the payoffs that the behavior produces. So if the payoff is high and the cost is low, the behavior will continue. Mm-hmm. Make a note of that. This is, this is gold. If, if the payoff is high and the cost is low, the behavior will continue. If the payoff is low and the cost is high, the behavior will stop. That is true of every human being. All of us at any age are subject to that same truth. Now, our costs and payoffs can change dramatically as we go through life, and they can be very different from person to person. Like many people don't understand why members of the church are willing to make such sacrifices of what they consider sacrifices. You know, we don't drink, drug, carouse around, you know, have multiple sex partners, whatever. And they think we're missing all the good parties, right? So <laughs> they wonder, why are you guys doing that? You know, it's such, you, you make all these sacrifices for what? But what are we doing it for? For a giant payoff. Right, right. When I taught early morning seminary, there was a sign in one of the offices that said, you know, when you work for the Lord, the pay may not be so great, but you can't be the retirement program. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and maybe I can ask you because I really love that. Um, Can you give us a a really clear example of what you mean by this payoff being high, cost being low, and how that impacts behavior? Absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple of examples, one for an older child and one for a younger child. And I'll start with the younger child one of my daughters-in-law came to me and said um, that she had her oldest daughter who like is an angel child, really. <laughs> she's like 15 now and she's an angel. We, she's just an amazing girl, almost 16. Wow. But um, when she was, you know, like two and a half or whatever, she was pretty stubborn. And uh, my daughter-in-law was like, I can't get her to pick up her toys. And she said, I'm just asking her to like take them and put them in this basket. Like it's super easy. She's completely capable of doing this simple task and she won't do it. She just refuses to do it. She's completely ignoring me. And I said, okay, it's costs and payoffs, right? So um, I explained the principle and then um, she said, okay, well, what can I do? And I said, well, first of all, are you having her pick up her toys before she goes to bed? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, that's a terrible time to have her do this because she doesn't want to go to bed. So the payoff of not picking up her toys is she gets to stay up later. So that's a big big draw. So we have to look at those things. We have to look at the whole scene. You know, what is paying? Why is this behavior continuing? Because there's a payoff, maybe multiple payoffs. What is the child getting out of it? Because they're getting something. And then, you know, what's the cost? Well, there was a minimal cost, except her mom would get upset at her and her mom didn't want to be that upset. And she wasn't being like mean or brutal or anything, but you know, it was a pretty negligible cost to this little girl. So I said, okay, do it before lunch. Cause the goal here is to get your daughter to comply with what you're telling her. It's not picking up the toys before she goes to bed. You can do that if you need to, but you want her to get in the habit of doing it your way, not her way. Cause your way is better. And this is really important for parents because it's not a democracy. It should be a benevolent monarchy. 
<laughs> that's, that's what it should be. This is not about, you know, the kids voting to overrule mom and dad. No, mom and dad get to be the benevolent monarchs and they should be benevolent because remember, guard the relationship. That means there has to be a lot of love, a lot of kindness, tenderness, and huge word here, safety. The kids need to feel safe. They need to feel like they can tell us anything. They can, you know, that we love and accept and we're in their corner and we're their biggest fans, et cetera. So all of that's really important. But then, you know, we do get to be in charge and we need to be in charge. Too much of what has happened in our society is that that has been reversed and the children are in charge and the parents just pay the bills. <laughs> so yeah. it's um, it's really reversed and it's not good because kids don't know how to raise themselves. You're not, they don't know enough to raise themselves well. So if we don't, if we don't raise them, you know, we're kind of abandoning our stewardship and that's not okay. It is not okay. So at any rate, back to my daughter-in-law, I said, I said, let's make it worth her while let's do this before lunch. So she doesn't get lunch until she picks up her toys. Little incentive there, right? You know, she likes to eat lunch. Yeah, she likes to eat lunch. Okay. What's her favorite lunch? Oh, you know, she loves peanut butter and jelly. Okay. Okay. So you tell her, hey, we're going to have peanut butter and jelly for lunch, but you know, you have to pick up your toys first <laughs> and until she picks up her toys. She doesn't get lunch. So my daughter-in-law called me the next day and it was probably like, you know, one 30 or two in the afternoon or whatever. And she said, she won't pick up her toys, but she's crying for food. <laughs> <laughs> she said, she's like holding her stomach and saying how hungry she is. And I said, look, it's not going to kill her. Even if she doesn't get lunch till dinner, don't you dare feed her until she picks up those toys. Hold your boundary. <laughs> you have to be more stubborn than the kid. And that's another thing parents don't do. They get out stubborn by their own children. And it's like, no, that's, that's absolutely never going to work. You have to be more stubborn than the kid. And people say, well, isn't that a power struggle? And first of all, I say, well, if it is a power struggle, you better win. But second, it's not a power <laughs> struggle because a power struggle is about red socks or blue. That's a power struggle because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Does that going to make any difference about whether or not they qualify for the kingdom of God or not? No. So that becomes a power struggle if parents insist on things that have absolutely no eternal meaning. Mm -hmm. But something about, and people might say, well, picking up your toys doesn't have anything. Oh, yes, it does. Because it's not about the toys. It's about the child learning to obey. It's about mm -hmm. the child not being thinking that they get to be a law unto themselves, which the scriptures clearly define as celestial behavior to be a law unto oneself. And that's the trouble. These kids become a law unto themselves because the parents don't know what to do. Anyway, I told my daughter-in-law, make that sandwich and make it dripping with jelly. <laughs> like, <laughs> luscious, her best sandwich ever. And wave it in front of her nose. <laughs> hey, this sandwich is right here. If you pick up those toys and if she's stubborn, you take a bite out of it. <laughs> Say how good it is. You can always make her another one, but like you, you know, you're not going to yield until that girl picks up the, the toys and then, and you be on her side. And this is another thing. If you've established a structure, then it, you don't have to be angry. And yeah. it's really important not to be angry because anger damages the relationship. So when we create a structure, it, it takes away the need to feel frustrated or upset. It's just, no, I'm going to work my plan and let the plan work the kid. So the plan is she doesn't get lunch until she picks up the toys. And then you can be on her side and say, oh, honey, I know you're, you're really hungry. That's so hard. You know, just pick up your toys and you can have the sandwich. Yeah. Oh, I sure hope you'll pick them up fast <laughs> because it looks like you're really hungry. 
And plus, obviously, we're not talking about brutalizing the child or starving them to death. You know, missing one meal is not going to kill any kid in this country. So, mm-hmm. you know, just you find an incentive, you find a lever and you use it. And it's amazing how many parents are shocked at this idea and they feel like, oh, that's too hard. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems is that yeah. we have become so soft as parents that we don't require enough of our children. And I used to remind my own children I said, hey, life is so much easier for you than it used to be back in the you know, New England Puritan days, <laughs> the Calvinist era, where they literally tried to beat the hell out of their children. I said, that's oh, yeah. not going to happen in this house ever because you know, we know better than that and we don't want to treat our children that way. But those children had to go and sit in cold New England winters on a hard bench and hear the preacher yell at them for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. And they had to keep their clothes clean and not, and I said, no, we don't require that. But Let's stop thinking that kids can't perform because they can. And historically, kids have risen to all kinds of behavioral requirements. And I would tell them stories sometimes of like, you know, Joseph F. Smith, who was like, what, 11 when his mother, um, his widowed mother, Mary, the wife of Hiram Smith, um, you know, crossed the plains and he was the man of the family at 11. And, you know, Indians stole the horses and he went after them and, you know, he drove the team and whatever. And I'm like, you know, kids are capable of so much more than we think they are. We've, yeah. we've all sort of seemed to be affected by this dumbing down of, of expectations, which is not to anybody's advantage. Kids can do hard things. And kids are really capable of doing a lot, but if they're not expected to, they lower themselves to those non-expectations and, you know, we all miss out. And let's not kid ourselves. We know a lot of missionaries that come home, you know, Mm -hmm. are not hacking the work. They're not able to be responsible for themselves or to cheer themselves up when things are hard. You know, they're not able to get along with people that they don't choose to be friends with. They and, and I, I don't mean to be tough on this because, I mean, I recognize that there's real pain there and so on, but we can trace this back a lot of times. Not in every case, there are medical things and so on. And there's sometimes traumatic things that happen, but that's fairly rare. So much of what's happening is because these kids have been, you know, kind of wrapped in bubble wrap their whole right. life. And, right. and they go out there and nobody is there to, you know, wipe their little tushy. <laughs> yeah. they, they don't know how to handle it. And that is not, that is not good for anybody. I, I read a book that I really liked and um, would recommend to anybody called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's by two authors, and I can only ever remember one. Who's, his name is Jonathan Haidt, but he wrote it with another guy who was a good friend of his. Really a great book. And, um, and there's, there's a lot of just you know, good kind of global understanding of what happened in our society. It's not a church book or written for, from a religious perspective, but really some great insights. In that book, they quote from another book that I started to read, but honestly, I haven't finished, but it's called Anti-Fragile. And forgive me, I don't even know how to pronounce this guy's name, so I won't try. (laughs) But the book is Anti-Fragile. It's not hard to find it if anybody's interested. But the quote was really good in The Coddling of the American Mind. It was talking about how some things are made fragile, like China. If you drop it on a hard surface, it breaks. Some things are made to be more resilient, like plastic. If you drop it on a hard surface, it probably won't break. It's not really great for the structural integrity of the plastic to be dropped on a hard surface, but it probably won't break. And then there are some things, the author says, that are made to be anti-fragile. And what he's defining that to be is that they require stress in order to optimize. He gives three examples. The first is muscle, which we all know, right? Use it or lose it. So if you, if you, you know, 
you have a cast on your arm for six weeks or whatever, the muscles atrophy because they're not being used and they get weaker, right? So we really do need to work those muscles in order for them to optimize and to perform their function, the function for which they were created and intended. Another example is bone that he gives. And again, stress or weight bearing exercise for bone, right? And they say, especially as we get older, walking, jogging, whatever, doing some um, weight resistance because it's really good for our bones to be healthier and stronger and less brittle and so on if they, if they are exposed to that regular stress. And then his third example is children. Hmm. Muscle, bone, children. They're made to be anti-fragile. I love that. And yeah. I've talked about that so much because we're creating really fragile children. And in fact, they wrote the book because um, they, these two friends got together and talked about how uh, back in 2016, when Hillary Clinton lost the election, the presidential election, that they canceled a lot of college classes and they canceled finals and some of them couldn't show up to class. And, and they were like, what? Like, since, since when are you allowed to stop functioning in life because your candidate of choice didn't win? Right. And they were sort of astonished by that because it really wasn't something that had happened before where they just accommodated these people's, you know, distress or unhappiness or whatever by not requiring them to function. Like that's a disaster for a country. Mm-hmm. And, and yet that has grown out of not expecting our kids to do hard things not expecting them to comply when we tell them to pick up the toys or to do their homework or to clean their room or to help with the kitchen or whatever, you know? And, and so we've really, you know, we're seeing huge costs, society-wide costs, because we don't parent as well as we should. And we feel so, and and let me just tell you, I'm going to warn people that if you start to use these principles to expect more of your children, there are going to be people who look at you and think you're abusive. Hmm. And of course, I'm not, I'm not ever advocating, you know, harsh physical punishment, uh, anything that's demeaning or destructive of a child's self-image or whatever, but it is not destructive of self-image. It's actually strengthening of a child's self-image for them to gain mastery over themselves. I mean, how do they feel good about themselves when they don't do anything all that impressive? And I'm not talking about like how they might be a good athlete or they might be good scholars or they might be good at music because those things have an immediate reward built in or a pretty quick reward, I should say. So, so that doesn't really count. I mean, if if we want our kids to be resilient, strong and, and effective human beings and potential inheritors of the kingdom of God, they need to master their own natural man. They need to harness that person that wants to be a law unto himself. And we are, we are abdicating our responsibility as parents if we don't use those costs and payoffs to help them gain that mastery. And that is helping them get far enough in because if they harness their natural man, they are no longer offending the spirit. And the spirit can witness to them of the truthfulness of the gospel principles. But if they are still doing whatever they darn well please, whenever they darn well want to, then they offend the spirit. If they're disrespectful to their parents, if they don't follow rules, if they're not willing to work, the spirit is offended and can't be there to witness and give, help them develop a testimony of the principles of the gospel. So you see how, in, I mean, this is all wound up together. Harming yeah, yeah. a natural man is essential for our children to be far enough in the gospel. 
Well, so how do we raise faithful, hardworking, resilient kids who know who they are? We need to have high expectations. We need to put them in situations where they have to do hard things and recognize that that's building muscle. That's, that's building bone that will allow them to be resilient, (laughs) anti-fragile as they are confronted with very hard things that they, it's not if, but when our children will have to do hard things. And, and I love this point of guarding the relationship because I know that sometimes as Latter-day Saint parents, we, we focus a lot on um, scripture study and family home evening and prayer, which are fundamental. However, that part, that line in the uh, proclamation where it says what is it? about the activities, Wholesome family activities. Wholesome family activities. I feel like so much of the relationship is helping your children feel very grounded in a strong family tradition that is positive, Positive. where they have things to look forward to. And and the relationships are so strong that they want to be a part of this family. And and their identity is tied up in this positive family tradition. A couple of things about that. First, let me just say, I mean, nice summary. I would say as far as having those high expectations, we have the great privilege of having the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can always use that as a litmus test. If it matters to God, it should matter to us. If it doesn't matter to God, let it go. (laughs) Let it go. And that's a really good reminder to us. Sometimes like I remember my kids were playing ball once when we weren't there and they kind of moved into the living room and a lamp broke and, you know, we were on a tight budget. So replacing a lamp was, was a hassle and I wasn't very happy about it, but I remember thinking, would this keep them out of the kingdom of God? No, it was an accident. If they did it on purpose, that's different, but it was an accident. So, and they're kids. So I was like, okay, it's not worth getting upset about this. They can help me clean it up a little bit. They can do an extra chore for me or something to, you know, remind them to be careful and not play in the living room, but it, it's not worth a big deal, but lying. Okay. That could keep them out of the kingdom. So you see what I mean? Using the gospel as a litmus test is so important so that we don't get caught up in just you know, small things and, and the thick of thin things, we really start, you know, we, we focus on, on the things that matter. Also, of course, it's really important as part of helping our children learn the gospel to answer the question why. And, and now, you know, how little kids can overdo that. I have a granddaughter right now who just asks why as kind of a reflex, you know, yeah. and I'm, you know, she was visiting with her family and I was, I turned that around sometimes. And she said, why that? And what, and I'd say, well, why do you think? And I made her think, even though she's like three, but she's smart and she came up with stuff. So I'm not talking about those kinds of why questions. I'm talking about the legit, you know, questions when the kids are like, I don't get why this is important. Or why are you making such a big deal about this? And we need to have an answer for that. And that's where we have a chance to transfer values, which is another way that they can become far enough into the gospel is to help have the reason why, and to know that this is our best stuff. This is my most precious material that has been given by God himself. And I'm sharing it with my child because I love you. And I used to kind of joke with the kids when they were like a little older and they would like, well, are you sure I can't do this? And I'm like, Hey, let's review whose side am I on? And because we had those wholesome family times and they knew I loved them and that their dad loved them, you know, I could pull on that and and remind them whose side am I on? And they knew, and they'd say kind of like, Oh, I know you're on my side. And I'd say, that's right. I can sit back and let you turn into a jerk, but not on my watch. (laughs) That is not happening on my watch. So that's, that's really important. And then about the building those family bonds and helping those be strong and they want to be a part of the family and everything. One of the things that's really important, this is a sociological principle. You know, we, we can divide 
jobs into kind of two categories. One is instrumental tasks, meaning that they are goal oriented. They are, you know, a kind of work. We have to get this done. That's an instrumental task. Or affective with an A, affective activities, which are the recreational stuff, vacations, you know, holiday times, going out and having a good time. What's fascinating, and sometimes we don't use this really valuable information, is that relationships are really made much stronger by participating in instrumental tasks, rather much more than they are by participating in affective tasks or the recreational stuff. And I'm not against family vacations. It's wonderful to do that, but it's really not nearly as bonding as like cleaning out the garage together or mm-hmm. the garden or, you know, doing jobs together. And, and I, and this is really important for singles. I wish all the singles wards would have a ton of service because first of all, they're a great resource. Those single people are a terrific resource. They don't, they know, I know they're busy, but they have a lot of time too. And, and they could do a lot of service and they would get to know each other better than if they just keep going to dances <laughs> because you don't get to know somebody nearly as well at a dance as you do serving in a calling with them yeah. or doing a service project with them. And, you know, usually our closest friends are people that we have had instrumental relationships with. So that's important to remember for our children to not think we have to entertain them to make them feel connected to the family. Although certainly there should be those wholesome family activities and recreation, but working together is what really helps us be stronger. We have to divide the task. We have to teach a little bit, support each other. You know, everybody's pulling their, anyway, positive self-image comes from kids being able to master themselves. And Mm -hmm. if they don't, you know, you can tell them they're wonderful to their blue in the face, but deep down, they know they're not so wonderful because they know they don't do hard things that they avoid those jobs or they escape them. I was going to give an example, if you'll forgive me, I'll try to be quick of an older child. And a lot of times I've had parents come in and say, well, I can't do anything with my 16 year old or 15 year old or 17 year old. And it's harder. It's a lot harder than it is for, you know, a three-year-old because, you know, they, they've got, if they don't have their own money, their friends have money. So sometimes (laughs) it's hard to, you know, or same thing with cars, but on the other hand, you know, they usually have a cell phone. Well, who's paying for that cell phone? And, and I've had parents say, well, I take their phone away, but it doesn't change their behavior. And I'm like, well, then you're not taking away for long enough. The cost isn't high enough. They can hold their breath for a day yeah. or use their friend's phone or use their laptop or whatever. I mean, it's funny, but parents don't, they just don't do enough sometimes to get the kid's attention. So um, if one day isn't enough, then it better be two days or three or four. And, and if they're disrespectful about it, you add another day or a week, depending on. And again, you've got to be making sure that you're teaching that child. Look, I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for your good. You might be angry at me, but the reason I'm doing it is because, you know, so we're trying to balance those things and make sure they know this is not arbitrary. And it's not because I hate my child or because I'm just the meanest person in the world. It's, I have a reason for it. Like I said, you know, if I weren't on your side, I'd let you turn into a jerk but not on my watch. So anyway, when I was teaching early morning seminary, I I taught early morning seminary for about five years in Las Vegas. And it was such a great experience. Love those kids. But anyway, one, almost every year I taught the juniors and almost every year there'd be a kid that would come in after grade time and say, Oh, my parents took my car keys. And I'd say, Oh, and I never said that's too bad because, you know, parents should be able to set some kinds of consequences for some behaviors. But I would ask, I'd say, oh, well, what happened? And they usually said, you know, well, my grades weren't good enough. And my next question, again, I wasn't going to say again, that like, oh, that's, that's, I'm sorry, because no, good for the parents to try to get their kids attention, right? But my question would be, well, how does that work? How long do you have to get your grades up? Do you have to wait to the next report card? Or is there a quicker, anyway, and this was always the answer. I'm not kidding, different kid every year or whatever, but 
was always the same answer. They'd say, oh, I don't have to do that. After three days, two or three days of bringing me to early morning seminary, they give me my keys back. <laughs> it's like, I weep for Zion. <laughs> I, I weep for Zion because I'm like, seriously? Seriously? I mean, let's face it. When we impose a consequence on our children, we impose a consequence on ourselves. And if we can't get our heads around that, we're going to fail. Yes. We are going to pay a price. And yes, if it means getting up early and taking my kid to seminary until they get their grades up, that's what I'm going to do. And it's going to, it's going to be hard. It's going to, it's going to be lousy and I'm going to do it because I'm going to be more stubborn than the kid. And, and those kids totally had their parents number. They, they, all they did was just hold their breath for a couple of days and then they could, you know, go ahead and get their privilege back without having to change. That is a disaster. It's a disaster. And if we have a consequence and it's not making a difference, this happens a lot too. I'll have a parent come in and say, you know, Johnny's biting Susie. And I'll say, well, what do you do about that? Oh, well, I put him in timeout. So is he not biting Susie? No, he still bites Susie, but I put him in timeout every time. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's, let's do the math. You know, this isn't working. It's not a high enough cost. Again, he's just holding his breath for a while and then he goes back to doing what he wants. You, we have to not be forgive me, but, you know, we get a little bit gutless as parents. You know, we, yeah. we don't want to make it harder for our kids. We don't want them to miss the party. We don't want them to miss the team practice. We don't want them to miss something at school. Well, shame on us because mm -hmm. whatever it is going to take to get that kid's attention, that's what we need to do. And they might have to be embarrassed and they're going to have to miss some things and they're going to, it's not going to be any fun, but that's what we're going to do. And you know what? It's going to work. It is going to work. I was in a relief society. It was not my own ward. It was an early society lesson. And it was about Joy Jones speech. That was the lesson. Oh, mm -hmm. I, I was another day. I was like, oh my gosh, I weep for Zion. Because <laughs> it was one story after another of like, well, I tried this, but it didn't work. And oh, I tried that. It didn't work. And honestly, it was what we kind of call learned helplessness where everybody sort of assumed that nobody can do anything to help their kids become any better. And that is not, true. It is that it is learned helplessness. Don't do it. Don't do it. We have so much more power than we're using in many cases. Now, let me just be clear. I'm not talking to any Nazi parents out there. <laughs> and there, there might be some, you know, who, who are too rough on their kids and they don't guard the relationship and they're all about, you know, discipline and compliance. There are not too many in our day. We tend to have more permissive parents rather than, you know, Nazi parents. But if there are some, I'm not talking to you those people need to build a relationship and ease up because some of the things that they're going ballistic about don't matter. And they're, they're costing the relationship. That's, that's never going to work long-term, but we are seeing a world that has sold out to permissiveness where parents feel completely powerless. It's kind of a learned helplessness. They, they don't want to have to deal with the consequences of putting consequences on their children and their neighbors aren't doing it. I mean, right. the primary used to be reverent. People, I'm older than you, and I'm telling you, the primary used to be reverent, and young men and young women used to be more respectful. And it's not just the world, it's that we've let down on our expectations and standards, and we've become too similar to the rest of the world. And that's not going to build Zion. Yeah. Well, so let's, let's talk about how we can honor our children's agency but still hold strong boundaries because for my cousin who I gave a shout out to earlier, she, this was something that she was really concerned about. 
of like, for instance, if you have a child who is extremely adamant that they are not going to attend church, they're not going to attend seminary, you know, things that can have a real long-term impact on their, their spiritual life. How do we encourage those behaviors but again, allow our children to have the agency that our father in heaven gives us. That's a, that's a tough one. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, I think we uh, have to make a distinction between agency and freedom. And that is not something that we discuss often enough because they are extremely different. First of all, God gave us this gift of agency, as you just said, and nobody can take it away. I cannot take my child's agency away. I might worry about it, but I shouldn't because it's not possible. Agency is not freedom. Agency is the ability to choose to follow the light or not, to choose to follow God or to rebel against him. You can put me in a stone box and bury me three miles deep. You can't take away my agency. You've taken away my freedom, but you can't take away my agency. I can still, in that stone box, before I die, I can either choose to try to follow God or not. So we really conflate the two. And it's a terrible problem to put those two things as if they're one, because they're not. Freedom is, is a commodity that should be negotiated. Now, freedom, I mean, there are always exchanges for freedom, right? So like I live in this country, in the United States, so I am not free to keep all my money. If I'm gonna be, you know, avoid consequences, I'm gonna pay my taxes darn it, <laughs> but that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to stop at stop signs and at stoplights, and I'm going to follow the speed limit. Now, if I don't, I'm taking a risk. There might be consequences. Maybe I escape them sometimes, but you know, at some point it's going to catch up with me probably. So I, I exchange my freedom for membership as a citizen of this country. And I exchange a lot of freedoms to be a member of the church just like we were talking about. We make all these sacrifices. People think we're fools to do it, but we are making an exchange for membership in the church, for full fellowship in the church, or for the right to go to the temple. I'm giving up these different freedoms. I'm not going to do any of these things that would keep me out of the temple. And there are a whole bunch of things that would keep me out of the kingdom. And so I'm exchanging my freedom willingly to have the benefits of membership in a group. If a little kid wants to be friends with certain girls on the playground during recess, and they all wear red socks on Wednesday, guess what? You're giving up your freedom to wear another color of socks on Wednesday if you're going to be a member of that group. Everybody exchanges freedoms all the time for membership groups. So we, we need to stop thinking. First of all, just please don't worry that you can take away your kid's agency because you can't. Hmm. You do have a right to negotiate freedom. If a child is a member of your family, guess what? And your family goes to church, you know, until you're 18 and paying all your own bills, which usually doesn't happen at 18. <laughs> <laughs> then you know what? We're going to church. That's what our family does. Now, I'm not saying that you should be like a bully about it. I think we need to have these conversations and say, look, you know, life really isn't free. You know, people think that they're free. In fact, I remember <laughs> one of my sisters used to say this when we were kids and she wanted to do something that she knew she shouldn't do. She goes, well, I have my free agency. And, you know, that was an incorrect use of the term. Hmm. Now, at that young age, I kind of knew there was something wrong with that, but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and as I got older, I realized, oh, no, she's, that's not true. Because agency doesn't mean you can do whatever you want and avoid the consequences. That's right. not what agency is. It means you can go to hell if you want. That's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
that's agency. And you can't blame anybody else for it. That's really what it means is that you can't blame anybody else for where you end up. You can't say the devil made me do it, or my, my mother was really too hard, or my father was a jerk. You, know, you can't say those things because God's going to say, yeah, but you had agency. When it comes right down to it, you're way over the age of eight, and you got to choose how your life turned out. So, so we should not you know, buy into that, that like we're taking away kids' agency. In fact, there's a wonderful speech, if anybody wants to read a little bit more about this, Dallin Oaks at a BYU devotional called Weightier Matters of the Law weightier, like W-E-I-G-H-T-I-E-R, weightier matters of the law, wonderful speech. And he talks about not confusing means and ends. And he talks about how agency and freedom are different as well in a little different way than what I did, but it's a great speech. So anyway, it's really important to realize that. Now I'm not saying again, that we come on heavy, but I think that we, again, with our effort to control or maintain the relationship and guard the relationship, we need to investigate. We need to say like, okay, you need to help me understand why you don't want to go to seminary. So that we're not just in a tussle of yes or no. It's like, help me understand what it is you have against seminary. You know, why you wouldn't go. Like, you know, you've been raised in this family. This is what our family does. You know, we expect you to go to seminary. It's a wonderful chance to have the spirit in your life during the day to remind you when you're at school, whatever, to have a different chance to hear somebody else talk about the scriptures. You know, what's the problem? And, and it shouldn't be a matter of like, well, I don't like the teacher. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> So that happens all the time. I mean, you know, we have brand new converts and we put them in and we let them teach classes in church. <laughs> they may not teach super well, but that doesn't mean you can't learn. And Elder Scott gave a great speech about how the spirit can teach us no matter who, what the teacher is doing and how well prepared they are. So that's not the issue. You know, what's going on? What, what is it that you have against, you know, religion or whatever? And if that's the case, well, we need to understand more about it because usually they can't come up with anything. I mean, they don't really have any big objections unless it's like they've gotten into some kitschy thing and they're saying like, well, it's LGBT. Okay, let's study what the prophets say about that. And let's make a an, an reasoned, you know, and, and careful and honest study of that without, you know, preformed conclusions that you're getting from the world. And let's, let's investigate. Let's make it a whole family investigation so that we can all learn about this, so that we can understand what, the, what God is saying about this. And, and let's not let this get in the way of your spiritual study. I did hear a, study that, or a story that really impressed me once, uh, but I'm not saying this would work for every family. But one family that I knew years ago told me that they had a teenager that didn't want to go to church. And they thought about it, talked with the child, prayed about it. And this is what they came up with. They said, well, we think the spiritual life is important for everybody. So if you're not going to go to our church, you need to go to a different church. Here's you know, like back in the day, it was, here's the yellow pages, but now you go online and look at churches, choose a church that you want to go to on Sunday. And we'll go, you know, one of us will go with you. And so the parents took turns going with this kid to different churches on Sunday for a few weeks. And it didn't take very many weeks. And the kid was like, can I go back to our church? <laughs> it's a happy ending and may not happen for everybody, but that was a way that they chose to not have, because we don't want to create this giant fight. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yeah, that, that becomes a power struggle, even though it's about something important, but it's like, get underneath it. You know, what's happening? And, and when did you stop believing in God? Or when did you stop thinking the church was true? And hopefully, you know, we're having conversations before so we can see if those trends are emerging. Sometimes they surprise us, let's face it. But, you know, ideally we would be and again, we don't always reach the ideal, but hopefully we try to, you know, be talking about these things at the dinner table. Remember that verse in Deuteronomy, I forget which chapter, I think it's four, but anyway, where it says, thou shalt speak of these things to thy children when thou liest down and when thou risest up and when thou walkest by the way. That's how we talk 
to our children about the gospel. It is not just for scripture reading. It is not just for family home evening or for Sunday after church. It should be all the time where we're like, oh, how did that help you learn something? Or, you know, what do you think God thinks about that? Or, you know, whatever. And I mean, of course, the kids are going to have their own thoughts or ideas. And sometimes, and again, we were pretty fortunate. Our kids were believers. They were inclined to believe. But, but a lot of it was because we, it was part of the conversation all the time. And right. sometimes I overdid it. And I admit that my kids would sometimes say, can I get a kind of a short answer on this? <laughs> and I'd say, <laughs> okay, I'll try. Because as you see, you asked me a question and I'm going to go back to the garden <laughs> and say like, let's review the plan because that's where the answers are. And so I did try to, but, and, and also it was really about like, I'm giving you my best stuff. Isn't it wonderful? And I, I would try to help them celebrate. I think it's really important, by the way, on a cold planet, here's another little thought that I think is really helpful. And that is to help our children from a young age, but at any age, recognize the love of God in their lives. Hmm. It can be a cold planet. And some of these kids do kind of tune out God, but we, we can help them by saying like, look, it could be in the way the fall colors looked or the way the mountain looks with snow or the way, you know, the rain fell that day or a new leaf or a flower or, you know, the song of a bird. And we should share this regularly, like maybe at the dinner table or before nighttime prayer or something or whenever, you know, just where did you see God's love today? And if they can see that, you know, God made the world for a very specific purpose, but he didn't have to make it this beautiful. He didn't have to make it with music. He didn't have to make it with bird song, but he did because he loves us and he wanted us to get that little love note. So don't just say, wow, what a beautiful, you know, sky, but recognize what a beautiful sky. And God knew I would be right here at this moment. And I would have this view and he sent it to me so that I could feel his love. And if we can teach our kids to tap into that love, it, it's harder for them to shut him out. Yes. And, and also, of course, teaching them to pray as a young age. I mean, I always felt such a privilege to teach my children to pray. And if you really want to see miracles, watch little children pray because God wants them to know he's there. And not every single time, but often there are little miracles that happen when children pray. And if we can help them realize that, like, there is this great God of power and he loves us and he wants to bless us. He does require that we make that possible by doing things his way, which are designed to bless our lives and bring us to greater happiness and avoid the, you know, hot stoves in life, you know, anyway, that helps. Now, once they're teenagers and they're already at that place, we kind of have to, you know, back up and have those same conversations. When did you stop feeling the love of God? What can we do about it? So anyway, we just have to investigate. Where's the hiccup? Well, that's, you know, we're, we're smart and we can be inspired and we can help to kind of detox that hiccup. I've never met anybody and I'm not saying they're not out there, but I personally over many years now, meeting lots of people have never met anyone who has left the church or lost their testimony, who didn't have a significant doctrinal misunderstanding. Hmm. They, I mean, they would say things about the church that bothered them. And I'm like, yeah, that bothers God too. He doesn't agree. <laughs> That's not his way. This is his way. And they're like, really? You know, anyway, so I'm not saying yeah. it's that easy all the time. I am saying the gospel is amazing and there's nothing like it anywhere. And we should not be afraid of, of, you know, kind of putting them to the test. What is it that you don't like? What is it that you're bothered by? Let's talk about it again, not in a debating way, but like we need to understand so we can help you come to a place of clearer understanding of more light and truth. Mm-hmm. Well, I love all of that. You're boy, you're just a wealth of knowledge, Lily. Um, again, just for the sake of just tying it all together. So I love how you uh, defined agency versus freedom. 
I think that's a really key difference that you mentioned. And we, we have to understand that there is a vast difference between allowing our kids to do whatever they want and that we can't ever truly take away their agency. And recognizing that when children are in our home, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to continue to set and expect the standard. Mm-hmm. And every child is unique and there will be different challenges that children will bring. But as we get underneath it, as we investigate it, yes, so often there are uh, issues that can be resolved just through through openness and transparency that take time to get at. It does um, take time. And it's but some of the best time you'll ever spend is, is in those discussions where we are asking the questions too. And then we're not freaking out at the answers because yeah. that shuts down the conversation. Yes. Of course. And if, you know, whatever they say, recognizing that like, okay, that's where they are for this moment, you know, tell me more. Um, if there hasn't been a lot of conversation in the family, that shouldn't stop us. I mean, I've had a lot of parents over the years ask me, well, I've never done that before. My kids are going to complain and say like, why are you doing this now? You know, you've never done this right. before. Right? So it's an easy answer. You just say, well, yeah, I upgrade my software too. <laughs> <laughs> like, why should that stop me? Right. So, you know, I'm still learning to be a parent. I'm just upgrading. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out and I'm going to get better at it. So give me, give me a chance. And you know, yeah, I mean, it might take some patience on your part. It's going to take patience on mine, but like, let's, let's get at it because we can get better at this, both of us. So it may be something we have to develop and learn in our own turn. And that's okay. Like I said, we upgrade our software. So just (laughs) give it a shot and pray for help because God will help us. And our kids can get used to it. We can expect that of them. Hey, I'm just learning to be a parent. So, you know, or learning to be a parent of a 16 year old. So I know this is, or a 16 year old like you, (laughs) even if I've had a 16 year old before, everybody's a little different. So, you know, give me, give me a chance to try something new. Give me a chance. You know, we're going to, we're going to get there if we'll give it, if we'll give it some time. Yeah. Well, and then just the two other points that you mentioned again, so that our listeners are really able to gather this and remember it, um, teaching true doctrine consistently is so key. And I'm with you on that. I think so much of what people struggle with is all tied to, a, to key misunderstandings about the doctrine of, of the gospel, particularly the plan. Um, so, and that, that, uh, quote by elder Packer, that this, the study yes. of doctrine changes behavior sooner than the study of behavior changes behavior, something like that. And I believe that I know that that is true. And finally, this idea that connecting them to God's love, and it's so much easier to disconnect yourself from an organization than Mm -hmm. it is from a relationship, like a relationship with our heavenly parents. And I, and that's another thing that I feel so strongly about that if we can connect our children to the divine and help them feel uh, the love that their father has for them as his child, then they will be well-grounded in the church, not because of the church so much, but because they know that's where God wants them. So recently I had this conversation with a woman who's in a very difficult situation. Her husband is reading all this anti-stuff and has pretty much lost his testimony. And he wants to talk to the children about this stuff. And some of them are being a little influenced and she's so concerned about that. And you know, of course, we don't have all the answers. And as I said, there are no guarantees, but we have to have some confidence. And I do want to mention that fear does not bless us as parents. And when we start to feel fearful, we need to back up and we need to say, okay, can I, you know, have 
confidence in the covenants that I have made. You know, every time we go through the veil in the temple, there are such powerful words there. God keeps his promises. So the best thing we can do for our children is to keep our own covenants. And then, yes, keep praying and trying to be inspired by the spirit. Anyway, I told this woman, memorize the standard of truth. Remember that statement by Joseph Smith? It's so beautiful, and I don't have it perfectly memorized, but it's pretty close to this. The standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the work of God shall go forth boldly, nobly, and independent until it has, what does it say, penetrated every continent, visited every clime, sounded in every ear, until the great Jehovah shall say the work is done. I'm missing a few I things. Such yeah. a powerful statement. And I said, that that's the truth. And share it with your children. Share it with your unbelieving husband, that nothing is going to stop this work. He can have his small victories if he tries to pull the children away, but nothing is going to stop the work of the Lord. You know, we have people who leave the church. We have people who fight against the church, who write the CES letters, who write these other things, and they try to tear down the prophet Joseph or the current prophet or everything else. And you know what? In the meantime, we're building more temples. In the meantime, we're converting more people. In the meantime, we're preparing a Zion people. Those of us who choose to buy into that are preparing to greet the Lord as a Zion people. Nothing will stop the work from progressing. We don't need to be afraid of who wins. We know who wins. And we can testify of that to our children and invite them to be a part of that victory. I mean, it's kind of a get on the train or get out of the way because the train is moving. And yes, I invite you with love to be on that train. And I will do everything I can to help you understand and answer your questions and study and learn more so that I can help you learn and testify of what I know of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, people, you know, so many of these kids are like, well, you can't prove it. And I'm like, that's right. If God wanted to prove it in that way, the golden plates would be in the church museum. I mean, it would be that easy. Angels would come to sacrament meeting every week. That's not what God is about. He's about choose to believe me. You're going to believe something. Either you believe, you know, that science disproves religion or you'd prove that religion is going to come through. I mean, we're all making choices about what we believe. Choose God. Choose God. Because in the meantime, the work is going forth and nothing will stop it. And we invite with confidence. Don't get weak. Don't start thinking that, you know, you're trying to sell something to people who don't need it. Everybody needs it, whether they acknowledge it or not. Everybody needs it. And so have confidence. Speak with with that power of faith that this is the best thing anybody has ever had is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Try not that train. I love that. I love that. And, you know, on this podcast, we obviously it's titled still rowing. And here we talk about people going through very hard things and they are deliberately choosing faith through those hard things. And, and it can be a great trial to see children leave the church. And and many people are struggling with that in the church currently, but I love that confidence that you express. And, and I know that keeping covenants has incredible power that it may take decades for children to choose God again, but the living example from a mother and or father who are faithful to those covenants, there is incredible 
power. And so to you moms or dads who are worried about a wayward child, to you, I say, you know, like Lily said, be confident in God's ability to redeem, to save, and to know that he is watching your child and he's still in their life. And, and we know how this ends and we can have confidence in that. Love them even more than we do. As we said, he's not going to give up on them. He's Mm -hmm. not going to forget where they are. He's not going to forget what they're struggling with. Um, there, there's that beautiful quote by John Whitsoe, I think, that talks about how the prophet Joseph taught that if we teach our children the gospel and keep our own covenants, I'm paraphrasing terribly, but that though the sheep may wander, you know, that they will, they will come back to the fold. We don't know exactly what that means. God doesn't contravene agency. Nevertheless, I don't believe we can lose our children, not forever. And they might be in another kingdom, but we know that the celestial can administer to lower kingdoms. We, God doesn't give us family and then rip it away. I, I can't believe he would have pre- presented that as a plan to his children. I'm going to give you these people that you're going to love more than life itself, but you'll never see them again after this life. I just, you know what? I don't believe he would have asked us that. And I don't believe we would have said yes. And that's not what's going to happen. There, there's going to be family here in the hereafter. Now, eternal marriage only applies to the highest level of celestial kingdom. So eternal marriage is quite something to learn how to be married so that you can be married for eternity. That is another subject. But family really is forever. Yeah. And it's not just family in the celestial kingdom. That would be kind of a bait and switch. God doesn't do that. So those family ties are going to go on. No matter what choices are made, we'll know our children are happy and okay, and we won't be banished from them forever. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, again, we don't need to be afraid. I think we get these ideas of like no empty chair, and it kind of freaks us out. Because we think if our kids aren't all temple worthy or whatever, that, you know, somehow we've lost them forever. No, we haven't. God hasn't lost his children. His children will be a part of his kingdom, whether it's celestial, terrestrial, or telestial. But he's not going to let us see our kids. Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's such an interesting perspective, Lily. And I think we need to think more like that because I think fear really paralyzes us as Latter-day Saints because we worry so much about our own mm-hmm. salvation. Mm-hmm. And so much about other salvation. And then that, that fear keeps us from living our most peaceful, joyful lives and really loving people freely because we're so worried. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Like we have to kind of get them into this mold in order for us not yes. to be free. And frankly, yes. you know, I've learned through life that God doesn't want us to worry. That's why he tells us how it ends. <laughs> and he yeah. also tells us stuff like, you know, Alma 29, right? That God granteth unto men according to their desires. That's an anti-worry statement. There are other really wonderful anti-worry statements. One of the one of the really nice summaries also is section, was it 94 verse? No, but section 90, verse 24. Sorry. And it says this, it's familiar, right? We hear this all the time. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing. That's the hard part right there. Be believing is to stretch our faith to be believing, and all things should work together for thy good if you walk uprightly and remember the covenant. I mean, that's amazing. And there was a time in my life when I was going through a trial, which by the way, I can't remember if that tells you something, but it was a big enough trial that I was worried about it. And I was taking a walk and I was kind of praying on the walk. I remember this, it was probably 20 plus years ago. And I was kind of praying during this walk for help with this trial that I thought was really troublesome. And um, that verse came into my mind and I couldn't have told you at the moment that it was 90, 24, but I went, I was in the DNC. So I went home and looked it up. But anyway, the verse came into my mind and I thought, okay, well, I search, 
and pray and walk uprightly and remember the covenant. He doesn't say we have to be perfect or finished. He says, we're trying to keep our covenants and we're walking uprightly, right? And to be honest, the first thought I had when that verse came into my head, I forgot this part. I need to say this. The first thought I had was like all things, <laughs> like really, I was kind of incredulous and unbelieving shame on me, but it was kind of like, seriously, all things are going to work together for my good. I'm hoping to survive. And you're saying it can be for my good. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, and th no kidding, this doesn't happen every day, but that day it happened that there was an immediate answer in my mind. And this was the answer. Either it's the truth or God's a liar. Choose one. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> you know what, Tara, I made that choice a long time ago, as did you, as did so many people who are listening. We made that choice a long time ago. We know he's not a liar. So time to put up or shut up. You know, he has made so many promises to us. Why are we fearful? Hmm. What we have to control is the only thing we can control and nothing else is within our control. So search, pray, walk uprightly, remember the covenant and believe. And I left the believing for the last because it's the hardest sometimes. Yeah. But use that belief. I mean, we have testimonies. We have testimonies of the gospel of the prophet Joseph, the current prophet of the scriptures. We have lots of faith. Why don't we believe in this? And it's a time sometimes to stretch that belief that we already have and stretch it over this trial, stretch it over this test, stretch it over this concern and believe. How else did we think our faith was going to get stronger? Except when there were places where we were like, okay, well, I believe all the rest of it, but I'm not sure this kid is going to be okay or that I am going to be able to survive this. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. God has said it is so, and he does not lie. And I can believe that. And my faith grows. You know, I think it was Dallin Oaks, but I can't find it when I Google it. So who knows? But, and I can't find this statement at all. So I don't know who said it, but it's a beautiful statement that some kinds of faith can only grow in the dark. Mm. Well, that's the time for our faith to grow. It's when we're in the valley of the shadow and we are inclined to worry. But you know what? That verse and many others tells us God doesn't want us to worry. We pedal and let the Lord steer. And it's a happy ending. Hmm. Well, that's so hope filling. I hope for those who have listened that we can just recognize that it's in God's hands. Our children are in God's hands and we can be good enough parents. We keep trying, we keep course correcting and, and believe that God will take care of us and, and our children. So thank you so much, Lily. Why are you still rowing? and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church. Oh, I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has all the answers. I'm not saying I know what all of them are yet, but I have seen those answers come in times of need. You know, as a clinician, it has been my very great privilege to get revelation from my clients. Hmm. And that you know, that experience of being meeting with clients has been a sacred one for me because in getting some of those insights and answers, I can feel God's love for every one of his children. Everything makes sense to me. I'm, I'm kind of a logical thinker. I'm in my head a lot of the time. And I love that things fit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think, and this is something that I, I should have said earlier, but sometimes the gospel is the best kept secret in the church. <laughs> And when we do have those doubts and fears, it's because we don't know enough and we need to get back and study and pray that we can have our minds opened. And that's a line upon line, precept upon precept process. It doesn't happen overnight, but the journey is so rewarding. I think here's one of the reasons I'm still, and I will end with this. 
When I was in college as an undergrad, I had my questions. I already had faith. I knew the gospel was true and I already felt the love of God. And I knew he, he could answer my prayers when they were right to answer. Very blessed, good parents, all that kind of stuff. But when I was in college, I remember having questions about blacks in the priesthood and about polygamy. Mm-hmm. And I went, I went to BYU and I, I made appointments with all the religion professors that I could. And I asked them about those questions. <laughs> you know what, as wonderful as those guys were, nobody had a satisfactory answer for me. <laughs> and I was kind of like, wow, <laughs> wow. So anyway, I had to kind of go back on myself and I said, okay, let me get down to essentials here. And I asked myself three questions. I asked, do I believe God loves me? And by extension, that, that he loves all his children. And yes, I did believe that. And I do. And the second question was, do I believe he wants me and his other children to be happy and to have a fullness of joy? And yes, I do believe that. So the third question was the kicker. Do I believe that he knows better than I do how that happiness and joy is going to be accomplished? And yes, I do. And that question is such a big one to me. And I think it answers so many questions because it's humble. Instead of thinking that I'm smarter than God, it reminds me that I'm not smarter than God. He is a lot smarter than I am. And I do believe that. And I bow gladly before it. I, I am so grateful to have a God who is omniscient that I can repose all my trust in. So when there are things that haven't come together yet, I know they will, because I know he's a genius. <laughs> that word doesn't even begin to describe how much God knows. This is not his first rodeo. Do we think he never thought about LGBTs before? Do we think he never thought about how we were going to respond to polygamy or whatever? No, of course he has. And he has all the answers and it all fits together beautifully. And Actually, those two answers about blacks and the priest and the polygamy did distill in my mind over years where I got answers that were very satisfying and complete to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that's how it happens. God wants us to exercise, but he wants us to keep rowing because he is smarter than we are. And he does desire our happiness because he loves us. I trust in that. Why would I ever stop rowing? <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Lily. I so appreciate you. Thank you for um, the intelligence and the passion again, and the wisdom that you're bringing to the world. Great to be with you, Tara. Thank (laughs) you very much for the invitation. You bet. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.